Our unison scripture reading this morning was the 23rd Psalm, and it's a a familiar passage, but that's not why we chose it as our unison scripture reading. It's It's a beautiful passage, but that's not why we chose it this morning. It's a comforting passage, but that's not why we chose it this morning. The reason we chose the 23rd Psalm as our unison scripture reading is because it is a passage that speaks about the fact that the Lord is our shepherd and we are his sheep. And today's sermon text is taken from the 10th chapter of John and it likewise has this as its theme. Please follow along as I read from the 10th chapter of John, starting in verse 22. This is the inspired word of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that through the preaching of the word this morning, we might come to see you better, that we might know you more intimately, more deeply, more truly. And as you make yourself known to us, We would see the wonderful blessings that are ours in being your sheep. And in seeing those, might we worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This this passage speaks about, as I said, how we are the sheep of God. He is our shepherd. And there are certain benefits to being Sheep of a good shepherd. And in this passage specifically, we're going to look at how the fact that because we are his sheep, we have these blessings. First of all, we believe in him. We are known by him. And we have eternal life through him. What wonderful blessings these are. What wonderful blessings indeed. If we're to look at this passage, I guess it's important to start out with a little bit of background information, kind of give us the setting. Uh, This feast of dedication that was going on in verse 22 tells us is a feast that actually is not named in the Old Testament. It's not listed among the feasts of the Mosaic Law. It's it's a different feast that came about during the intertestamental period after the Old Testament, but before the New Testament, and what had happened is how there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he he had uh, taken over 
the area that is occupied by Israel and, and had come into Jerusalem and, and had taken over that area. And part of the things that he did when he would take over areas is he wanted there to be a common religion. He didn't want each different people having their own religions. He saw this as a means of uniting them all together and, and hopefully guarding against rebellion. And so he actually came into the temple in Jerusalem and he took out of the temple many of the valuables, many of the treasures of the temple for his own possessions. And even worse, he set up an altar to worship the Olympian gods, and specifically Zeus, and had, had worship for Zeus in the temple of Yahweh. Now you can't think of anything really that would be much more galling to the Jewish people than to have somebody come in and worship a false god in their temple. And sure enough, the whole goal here was to quell rebellions, to, to guard against rebellion. Well, he calculated very wrongly because this actually incited rebellion amongst the Jewish people. And under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, there was a revolt that ultimately drove them out of the temple and and in the year 164, in, in 164 BC, in what is our month of December, they reconstituted, rededicated the temple to the worship of Yahweh. And then annually after that, they would have a festival. And it would go on for eight days. And it would be this feast of dedication, what we know today as Hanukkah. That's kind of the origins behind that. And that is the Feast of Dedication that is taking place at this time. And, and it's a time when many people would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate together there. They would make pilgrimages. And so all kinds of people are there. And we're told here that many people were at the temple and they were, they were longing for a Messiah. They were longing for one to come who would finish this work that Judas Maccabeus had begun almost two centuries before. They wanted somebody who was going to drive out all the Gentiles to get rid of the Roman rule that was oppressing them at that time. And they thought that that Messiah could be before them. In verse 22, we see that, went on to say that it was winter time. Well, December usually falls in winter time. So why, why would it be that John would mention this? And I think that specifically he mentions it because he's pointing us to a fact that not only was it winter time on the calendar, it was also the winter of Jesus' ministry. You see, opposition was rising against Jesus. He had been in ministry for almost three years now, teaching, doing works, telling people about the kingdom of God. And now opposition was rising to a fever pitch. We're told right after this passage, actually, the very next verse, after verse 30, which I read a moment ago, says that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And then as we read on a little bit further into the next chapter, we read about Jesus healing Lazarus, raising him from the dead, a sure sign of his divinity that he could do that, but also a provocation that led to more plots to take his life. Opposition was rising. Jesus' path toward the cross 
had taken a turn. The road to Calvary was going directly toward the cross at this point. It was right in front of him, and he would soon be there. It was the winter of his ministry as well. And so the Jews gathered around him, we read in verse 24. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah. Some probably wondered this legitimately. But as we look at this passage, we see that most are not asking the question because it is a legitimate question question it is a question that is rather a snare that is set for him they're trying to trap him they're trying to get him to say something that will will get him arrested and and ultimately executed and of course that is what will happen eventually it is not that far down the road as i mentioned and that is what they're trying to do and so jesus answers them in a somewhat circuitous way here Understanding their duplicitous motives, Jesus answers them in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. It's interesting that he says, I told you, because up to this point in the Gospel of John anyway, we we look and we can only find one place where Jesus has explicitly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. And that is in an... uh, independent, a private meeting with a Samaritan woman at a well where he has proclaimed that he indeed is the long-awaited Messiah. That's the only time that John has told us about at this point that he has actually proclaimed this in a forthright way. So why is it that Jesus says, I, I told you? Well, we get a hint at it in the next half of that verse 25 where he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's true for all of us, isn't it? Our works bear witness about us. Our works speak to who we are. I mean, we can claim to be Christians, but if we go about our life living in a most unchristlike manner, then our works show that we are not what we claim to be. Our works... What do we say sometimes? Actions speak louder than words? Indeed, this is true. And so Jesus is saying here, I have told you. I have told you through the works that I have done. For instance, in chapter 2, Jesus has changed water into wine. The coming of the Messiah is to be is to be foreshadowed it is to be presented by free-flowing wine and he does so at a wedding which points us forward to the the wedding feast of the lamb which is coming in chapters four and five we see jesus healing various people in chapter six we see the miracle of the feeding of five thousand we see jesus walking on water these are acts that point us to his deity in chapter nine He is seen giving sight to a blind man. Jesus says, these works that I have done in the name of my Father, they proclaim who I am. I am the one who gives sight, the one who has power over nature, the one who heals the sick. And we will find out, as I said, a chapter later with Lazarus, that he is even the one 
who gives life. Jesus is the Messiah. It is quite clear that his actions have said that. And the reason they believe, or the reason they do not believe, the reason they do not believe is not that Jesus hasn't spoken plainly. It's not that they don't have enough information. It's not that he hasn't made it very direct to them. The reason they don't believe is because their eyes are blind to the truth. Their ears are stopped and their hearts are dead in the sin in which they live. Now wait, Pete, what you might say, wasn't that true of all of us at one point? Weren't we all dead in our sins? Weren't we all deaf to the words of God? Weren't we all blind to what he shows us? And indeed, we were. Our natural condition is one of rebellion. John tells us in chapter 12 and verse 43 that people love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. We long to exalt ourselves and to be exalted. That is what we long. Our primary issue isn't a lack of knowledge, but rather it is a stubborn refusal to accept that which has been shown to us by God. Our main problem, our core problem, is one of pride. It is one of thinking that we know better than God. So what is it? What is it that gets us from this place of pride to a place of humility? What is it that that brings us life and, and, and enables us to not be so prideful? Well, functionally, I fear that often we think, well, I was able to move from death to life. I was able to see the truth of the gospel where some others don't see it because I'm smarter than them. (laughs) Or perhaps because I'm more holy than them. Or perhaps I'm just better than them. Brothers and sisters, I tell you this with great certainty. The antidote to pride is not thinking that we are better, smarter. (laughs) No. The antidote to pride is one thing and one thing only. And we see it in verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus says, You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. It's interesting. It's important that we get the order right. He doesn't say, you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. I think that's how we often think about it, how we often even teach it sometimes. But that's not what Jesus says. He does not say, you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Much the same as we said a couple weeks ago, we're, we're not sinners because we have sinned, but we sin because we are sinners. That is how we are born. So it is with our status as sheep within the flock of Jesus. We are in his flock for one reason and for one reason only. It is because God has shown us his grace, because God has removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. It's because God has opened eyes that were blind 
and because God has opened ears that were deaf. It is because he has taken we who were dead and given us new life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And he has done this not just for us, but for his purposes and for his glory. And that all leads us to the second benefit of being a sheep of Jesus' flock. First of all, it is that we believe in him when we are members of his flock. The second benefit is we are known by him. What's the big deal? We're known by him. That doesn't seem that special on its surface, does it? Oh, but it is. But it is. To be known by our Savior is a wonderful blessing. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. There are all kinds of ways that we can know things, aren't there? There's kind of an informational knowledge, the kind of knowledge that we might gain in school or from reading a book. You know, I know dates, you know, 1776 and 1492, and we know things like I before E except after C, and there's, there's that kind of knowledge. But that's not what it's talking about. There's also the kind of informational knowledge we might get learning how to do a job, or maybe we learn certain things from, from, from our father. You might know how to build something. I don't know how to build anything. Many of you know how to build things. But that's not the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. That's just kind of knowledge of information, knowledge of processes. There's, there's a deeper knowledge, kind of a, a f- knowledge of familiarity. You know, when, when you know a place, some of you have vacation places that you go back to year after year after year. And, and there's a familiarity to that, or perhaps even your home. You know your home. You know it. You're, you're comfortable there. Some of you have a certain pew you sit in every week. You know, you're comfortable there. It's not so much that that pew is, is qualitatively better than all the other pews. Maybe it is. I haven't found that pew yet. But, but they're all pretty much the same, right? But, but there's something about my pew that I want to sit in. I know that pew. I'm familiar with it. Or, or a certain table in the fellowship hall that we want to sit at because, because that's my table and, and I'm familiar with that table. That's where I'm going to sit. There's something about familiarity and knowing that that's good. But the kind of knowledge that our Savior has for his sheep is even deeper than that. There's a knowledge that comes with relationship. Those relationships can be kind of coincidental sometimes. You know, well, you know, I I met this guy. It's my boss's cousin who came to work one time to take him to lunch. And I met him and we shook hands and, you know, haven't seen him since. You know, I know that guy, kind of, you know, coincidentally. I remember his name. If I saw him again, I'd say hi. Do you know? Yeah, well, you kind of know him. Deeper than that, there's kind of the casual relationships that you might have with somebody you work with, with a neighbor maybe, where you know a little bit more about them. You know, you know not just their names, but a little bit of their background, their family, some of their likes and dislikes. It's deeper than that. There's the, the deeper relationships that you have, let's say, with family members, where, where you not only know their likes and their dislikes, but you, you know some of the things that they don't let other people see 
about them. It's more intimate, more in-depth, even to the point where, where your life is intertwined with their life. <clears throat> it goes deeper than that. Here's the kind of knowledge that the Savior has for his sheep. It is the deepest of knowledges. It is relational, like those last ones I was talking about, but it goes even deeper. It is a full knowledge. It is a complete knowledge. Jesus knows us perfectly. Yes, he knows every hair on our heads. He knows every inch of us, every bit of us. He knows every thought that goes through our mind, every beating of our heart. He knows. And he loves us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to think that that he knows? He knows everything about me. He knows all the ugliness that resides in me. He knows the mean things that I've done and the mean things that I've said. He knows the sinful thoughts that I've harbored. He knows the evil things that happen in my life and in yours. And yet, he loves me and you. How wonderful is that? I mean, it would be one thing for him to love me if he didn't really know me. You know, because I've kind of put up this facade and he loves the facade You know, that's kind of how we are a lot of times, isn't it? We put our best foot forward and somebody loves us, but then when they actually get to know us, oh, maybe not so much. But Jesus knows us perfectly and he loves us perfectly. What a blessing. He says the kind of knowledge he has is of such intimacy and depth of knowledge. In verse 15, Uh, of John 10. He says, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. What kind of knowledge did Jesus have of the Father and the Father of him? Perfect knowledge. Perfect fellowship for all of eternity. There was nothing hidden, nothing held back. And he says, this is the kind of knowledge that he has of us. The kind of knowledge he wants us to have of him. And he says, That this knowledge that he has is a matter of devotion and dedication that goes beyond our wildest dreams. It is the kind of devotion and dedication that would cause him to say, I lay down my life for my sheep. He would lay down his life for us. He has laid down his life for us. Even knowing all of the sin that so permeates our lives. He knows it all. He died for it all. How wonderful. He knows us. There's another illustration that the Bible gives for the kind of knowledge that Jesus has of us. It's a picture of marriage. It's a picture of marriage. And in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks, and he he is speaking about marriage and husbands and wives and and marital roles, and we don't have time to go into that today. But, but what he does say at the end of the passage where he's talking about it, he says that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And that's interesting to us when we think about that. We say, no, Paul, you're not talking about Christ and the church. You're talking about a husband and a wife. It's obvious. This whole passage was about husbands and wives. And now what do you mean you're talking about Christ and the church? The reason he says that is because one of the very purposes of marriage is to point us toward the picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. The kind of love that he has for his church. The kind of knowledge he has of his church. And and we think of what marriage is supposed to be like in its perfect state before the fall even. Go back to chapter 2 of Genesis. And we see Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does it say? They, they were naked and they were not ashamed. We've talked about this. How What we're saying here is that there was nothing hidden in their lives. Everything was known. They had no shame. Because they had no sin. And they were able to bear themselves completely to another because there was no fear of rejection, no fear of being abused in any way, no fear of being taken for granted. There was perfect, perfect confidence in the perfect love that another had for them. That is what it means to be known. And that is the kind of intimacy and affection and love that our Savior offers to us. He knows us perfectly. And what a blessing that though completely known, we are completely loved. And this is the thing, when you are completely known, and even so completely loved, there is nothing to prevent you, nothing to hinder you, from giving yourself completely to that other person, to your beloved. What hinders us so often from giving ourselves to others in relationship is is that fear that we will be rejected so I can't show who I really am. That fear that we will be taken advantage of so I can't make myself vulnerable. But Jesus knows us perfectly and loves us perfectly. And so we can, without fear of rejection or fear of abuse, give ourselves to him. And that's specifically what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. That is what a sheep does. It follows the shepherd in faith. That's what faith is. It is hearing and following. It's not enough to just know intellectual knowledge to understand, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins and that's great and that's the end of the story. Let's go on sinning. No. It must change the way we live. It must have an impact on us that Jesus knows us in this way. It must transform us. That's why James says faith without works is dead. You see, we are called to a living faith, not a dead faith. We're called to a faith that leads to action. Following Jesus. Now why should we do this? Why would we follow Jesus? What's in it for me? Well, 
It's not about me, first of all. It's not about what's in it for me. My mindset should be one of glorifying God. But since you asked, what's in it for me? Everything. It's absolutely incredible. He tells us right here in verse 28. I give them eternal life. Eternal life. It's incredible. It's amazing. Eternal life. First of all, our finite minds cannot grasp this idea of eternality. We cannot get our minds around that. But it is amazing. He gives us eternal life. Eternal not only is is a time word. It's not just talking about the quantity of life. It is also talking about the quality of the life that he gives. He came, he tells us in John 10.10, that we might have life and have it abundantly, that we might have life to the full, that we might have true life, life as life was meant to be. And what is that? Well, in John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is what true life is. True life is an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Before sin entered creation, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. And that is what true life is. That is what true life, unmarred by death, is. It is a close, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And that is what Jesus offers. He brings that and gives it to us if we only trust in him. Now, eternal life also does mean that time element. It goes on forever. And if it goes on forever, that must mean it is perfectly secure. For if it weren't perfectly secure, if it could disappear, then it would not be eternal. It can never come to an end. That is what he offers. It can never end. It goes on forever and ever. And how can we be sure that it is truly eternal in time, that it goes on forever? It comes down to what we used to say on the playground when I was a kid. We'd go out to recess and you'd get in an argument with somebody about this, that, or the other. And the trump card that we'd always play, it was the same. My daddy's bigger than your daddy. That's what it ended up with. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. It's right there. We look and he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, the sheep are held by the hand of the Father. They are a gift to the Son, a precious gift to him, and and he will never, ever let them go. We can be sure of it because of the mighty hand of God. And for this reason, we with Paul can be sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord what a blessing
Okay, so perhaps nobody can pry us away from God. But how can we be sure he's not going to let us go? I mean, after all, there is a lot of ugliness in my life. We've already admitted that. What if he just says, you know what? I've had enough. I gave Pete 13,379,692,131 chances. I'm done. How can we be sure that he won't say that? Well, we can be sure this, this is out. We can look at verse 30, and then we can look to the cross. Verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. This unity talked about here is a unity of purpose. It is a unity of plan. The Father and the Son have the same plan, the same purpose. And what is that plan? What is that purpose? It is to bring us securely to salvation and to hold us forever. Remember, it's not just that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's that the Son so loved the world that he went. They have the same purpose, the same mind. And as one pastor has put it, we are secured for all eternity because the hands which were wounded for our transgressions can never be doubted for their love. And the hands which created all of creation out of nothing can never be doubted for their power. And so it is that we can be certain that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. And the Son would never let his beloved go. So let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that we will never be let go by the Father or the Son. Not because our faith is consistent, not because our faith is mighty, not because our faith is even good, but rather because our faith is in one who is consistent, who is mighty, and who is good. So let us give ourselves fully to our beloved Savior and rest in his loving arms and rejoice for all of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that you hold us in your grasp and that none can snatch us from it and that you have promised us that you will hold us forever and that even more important than our well-being is your honor and your faithfulness. They are at stake and you will never go back on them. And so we rejoice now in a way that we will rejoice even more gloriously for all of eternity. For you are ours and we are yours. And we thank you for that. In the name of the one who is our shepherd, we pray. Amen.